Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, disparities in wealth, mental health challenges, and immigration. This month, in celebration of Black History Month, we're saluting the 100-year anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance and the New York Public Library Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. No one knows exactly when the Harlem Renaissance actually started, but people of African descent started migrating from the South and the Caribbean into New York City during the early 1900s. In the 1920s, Harlemites were treated to an explosion of paintings, plays, novels, poetry, and short stories, poems, and jazz, all of which defines the Harlem Renaissance, and you see every day as you travel the neighborhoods around City College today. There were well-known writers at the time. They included Zora Neale Hurston, Alan Locke, Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, and James Baldwin. Jacob Lawrence's paintings portrayed stories of African migration from the south to the north. And James Van Der uh, Zee uh, was taking photos of middle-class African-American families all through that age. The Renaissance was in full swing in 1927 when Duke Ellington took over the bandstand at the Cotton Club. The accomplishments of African-Americans in Harlem during that era are too numerous to mention. But I'll say, if you walk the neighborhoods around City College, you see the footprints and the legacy of that uh, creative explosion. The talented men and women who started the Harlem Renaissance may be African-America's greatest generation because through their art, they defined African-American life, which was often different than the way the larger uh, society portrayed it. Now, one institution that took shape during the Harlem Renaissance is the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And we'll talk more about the Schomburg later in the show on the second half when the grandson of Alfonso Schomburg, Dean Schomburg, will join us to talk about his grandfather's historical achievements and a little bit about the Schomburg uh, Center itself, Schomburg Library. But at the moment, we are um, really privileged, and I'm personally excited to have Assistant Professor Laurie Woodard with us. Um, Laurie is an assistant professor in both the History Department and the Black Studies Program here at City College. Her research focuses on the intersection between the cultural and the political realms, drawing from performance studies, critical race theory, and women and gender studies. Her work has appeared in the New York Times and American Quarterly. In addition to receiving the National Endowment for Humanities Schomburg Scholar in Residence Fellowship, she also received the Sylvia Arden Boone Prize. Professor Woodard began her professional life as a dancer with Dance Theater of Harlem. She has a BA in history from Columbia University, a PhD in history, and African-American studies from Yale University. And she's currently completing a manuscript on the life and work of performing artist and civil rights activist Freddie Washington. And I'm really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about that as the, as the conversation continues. But Professor Woodard, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Now, I'm really glad you're able to make time for us, and especially during um, Black History Month. And to start us off, I'd like to just have you tell us a little bit about your career. You started as a dancer in the Dance Theater of Harlem. You're now a historian. Um, and I wonder in your thinking how this connection between your life as an artist and your life as a historian, how has that played off and uh, played out, and, and what's the pathway that's brought you to this point? Yeah, uh, in a nutshell, I would say I'm a cultural historian, okay. um, which enables me to think about uh, arts and cultural production, uh, the history of that, the ways in which artists interact 
with other artists and with larger uh, communities. Um, I did start off with Dance Theatre of Harlem, which is another uh, cultural icon and institution here in, in Harlem, uh, in the city. And uh, I just, uh, started out as a student in the school for a summer when I finished high school and then joined the company and toured nationally and internationally uh, with them. Um, and then uh, at the same time, I was always sort of aware that I wanted to be uh, or I wanted to have access to traditional education. I certainly mm -hmm. got a fantastic education with the company in terms of Arthur Mitchell, the director, um, insisted when we were in Russia, for example, that we visit the Hermitage. And so, you know, we saw a lot of these amazing things, the, the Paris Opera and, you know, all these uh, institutions that were there around the world. Um, but uh, I, at the same time, when I made the decision to go from high school to a dance career, not going to college right away, um, I always knew I wanted to be traditionally educated. I mm -hmm. wanted to be well-read. Right. Um, and so when I, uh, I stopped dancing, I, I spent some time um, in Europe, actually as a fashion model, of all things, and then, uh, which also has impacted my work mm -hmm. um, in ways. Uh, but then I decided to come back to the United States and um, uh, pursue a traditional education, a liberal mm -hmm. arts education. Um, but my experiences as an artist and as a model um, in terms of thinking about uh, cultural production, but also the ways in which race, gender, um, uh, class, impact those art forms and the ways in which those art forms can impact our conversations about those larger issues, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I do think a lot about um, artists as activists, um, but also even not just art as propaganda, but what I call politically informed or socially informed art um, so that somebody like Freddie Washington, who is the subject of my research, um, was not somebody that was putting work out that was, you know, specifically about, I want to change the way you think, but her presentation of African American humanity um, changed the way people thought. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, I... I, I Early on in my academic career, I studied social movements, mm -hmm. and, and, and one of the things, I remember conversations, and this wasn't in the United States, it was in Southeast Asia, but the movements would have artists, right. um, and I remember these debates about the autonomy of the creative vision. Mm -hmm. You know, is the artist, I mean, you use the word propaganda, is mm -hmm. it the job of the artist to translate the movement's message in a way that's accessible? Or is it the job of the artist to do her art and and assume that people will find the 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 intersection between that vision and and, and what the movement uh, espouses? And and I, I wonder as you think about the people you've studied, is this something that they're wrestling with? Absolutely. Um, w. E. B. Du Bois mm -hmm. um, was famous for saying all art must and should be propaganda. Right. Um, and he was mm -hmm. absolutely clear about the fact that no black artists uh, should create anything that had, you know, didn't have a specific socio-political message 
uh, involved. But at the same time, well, and that is a hotly contested Langston Hughes, for example, uh, is equally famous for saying, we don't care. Um, we, the younger generation, uh, you know, we are going to present our art and ourselves as we are. Um, I'm paraphrasing now, but if white people are happy, that's great. If they're not, too bad. If black people are happy, that's great. If not, too bad. Uh -huh. um, you know, so he was definitely about the truth of the individual artist, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, and this is kind of where Freddie Washington falls into it, um, when much of the world um, is not just contrasting your... Uh, presentation of self, but are contrasting it with grotesque stereotypes um, and using those stereotypes to justify political disenfranchisement, economic oppression, physical violence, right? right. Um, they're using them, they're saying, oh, you know, the reason that we're lynching you is because you're a brute, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so here's a lot of pictures of you as a brute, right? Here's a lot of imagery, right? Um, and so Du Bois was basically arguing that we have to combat that. But in a way, so was Hughes in that by presenting the humanity of black life and culture, of black people, um, he was combating it even though he didn't understand it or didn't express it as uh, propaganda specifically, right? In, in, a, in a profoundly racist society. Exactly. The presentation of, of, of humanity is subversive. I, exactly. Uh -huh. It's, yeah, absolutely. Also, too, um, when you have, you know, centuries of oppression, um, I don't think that the majority of black people um, internalized their inferiority the way that some narratives suggest, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think it was important to, to express to black people their, the celebration of, of what was great about black life and culture and the black community. Um, and I would argue that the Harlem or New Negro Renaissance um, is first and foremost about black people speaking to black people. Mm -hmm. um, and then it goes into this sort of wider um, conversation with mainstream America and, you know, even arguably white supremacist America, mm -hmm. the parts of it. Mm -hmm. So you, in, in just now you used the phrase uh, Harlem Renaissance and New Negro Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And in your writing, you distinguish between two movements, the Harlem Renaissance, which was primarily a cultural movement, although you can tell me I'm wrong about that, and the new Negro movement, which was primarily political, and then a kind of coming together of those two movements in what you call, the, and the words don't slide off the tongue, but the new Negro movement, which is both cultural and political. Is that right? And could you give us some background in that? Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of a historiographical argument mm -hmm. um, that, that scholars have really talked about. Um, initially, uh, people talked about it as uh, the Harlem Renaissance, and then um, participants in the movement, as well as scholars of the movement, kind of realized, oh, wait, it's not just happening in Harlem. Um, it's happening in D.C., and it's happening in Chicago, and it's happening in Kansas City, and, oh, it's even happening in L.A., and, you know, so we can't really call it the Harlem Renaissance, even if Harlem was sort of understood as 
what James Weldon Johnson called the Negro Mecca, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of the epicenter of the movement, but the movement was happening everywhere. Um, likewise, uh, scholarship has said that, okay, there's this cultural flowering, um, the, the pinnacle of which was Elaine Locke's um, anthology, uh, The New Negro, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that contained literature and plays and poetry and, you know, all this written text. Um, but that doesn't come out until 1926. Um, arguably, at least 1920, I would even go so far back as to say, and as you pointed out, people are really un unsure about exactly when the movement started. Yeah. Uh, but I would go back to 1915. Um, the reason being is that is uh, the death of Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. And um, when Washington died, uh, it made a space for new ideologies, new strategies, new discourses, new individuals like W.E.B. Du Bois, right, mm -hmm. who sort of stepped right in. Um, and so that uh, you also have 1915 as a huge surge in the Great Migration, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a big part of the Harlem New Negro Renaissance is, uh, you know, the movement of black people from the, the rural South to the urban South, so from the outskirts to places like St. Louis or Kansas City, uh, Raleigh, right? Um, but then to the urban North and West, mm -hmm. right? So the movement is, the physical movement is hugely important. Um, the scholarship also talks about the New Negro Movement, uh, which people have understood primarily as the activism, right? Um, social activism, political activism, uh, labor activism, all of that, right? So fighting for the rights of black people. Um, but what we've recently sort of come to realize, right, because it's, it's, it's kind of been staring us in the face for a long time, but uh, the scholarship has now said, oh, actually, these are not necessarily different people. There are artists and there are activists, but there are also artist activists. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that are involved in all of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, Freddie Washington is an artist activist. Langston Hughes is an artist activist, right? Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, they're on stage, but on the other hand, they're on picket lines for um, desegregation of stores on 125th Street, for fair hiring of stores on uh, 125th Street and throughout, throughout the neighborhood, so, right? So we're not now talking about the activism as being solely a part of, of, of the art, that, you know, Freddie Washington founded unions and yes. organized. So let's yes. talk about her. Yeah. Um, what, what attracted you to her story? Um, actually, and, and Freddie Washington crosses over with Arturo Schomburg as well, um, but I found her because um, I was at the Schomburg uh, Center many, many years ago, and um, there was a photo exhibit by two guys named Morgan and Marvin Smith, who were twin brothers, um, originally from Kansas, and they ended up in Harlem in the 1930s. And they photographed everybody from Pablo Picasso to dancers at the Apollo, right? Mm -hmm. um, and kids on the street in Harlem, black beauty contests, Joe Lewis, you know, just sort of Eleanor Roosevelt, ev everybody. And one of the people they photographed was a woman named Freddie Washington. And in the image, um, she's in a kind of a business suit. She has a houndstooth jacket on. It's kind of boxy. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, she looks 
like a business person, not like a movie star, right? right? But it was taken in 1937, and she was a movie star by right. then, right? She's most famous for um, the film Imitation of Life. Yeah. Um, for anybody who knows Imitation of Life, your experience may be like mine in that I was like, wait, I've seen Imitation of Life and I've never seen you. There are two versions, right? Um, Freddie Washington's version comes out in 1934, and then there's another one um, that stars a woman named Susan Conner. Um, in, it's colorized, and it comes out in the 1950s. Uh, so that's okay. why you may have seen Imitation of Life but never seen Freddie Washington. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, but anyway, so she was famous for that. She was really famous within the black community and well-known um, in mainstream America because of this film. Um, and so I saw this exhibit, and I looked at this photograph, and she's got this suit on, but she's also wearing an anti-lynching armband. And so you have this, you know, beautiful movie star woman with this very, you know, serious demeanor with this incredibly ugly symbol on her arm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, my God, who are you, right? right? You know, that all these things, literally in this one image, artistry and activism are married, right? right? I mean, you can see it all right there. And so that's how I, I started out. That was my interest. I started looking for, back then, you couldn't find, you know, things on YouTube and, and video and what have you. So I went searching at the Schomburg um, mm -hmm. to find the film and uh, to find out more about her. And yes, um, it turned out at the same time that that photograph was taken, um, she was also a um, founder and executive director of an organization called the Negro Actors Guild. Mm -hmm. And the Negro Actors Guild um, was basically a Depression-era relief organization in its origin, right? Um, they raised money. Um, performing artists, the lives of performing artists are precarious at best, right? Um, during the Depression, they're really teetering on the edge. And for black artists, it's like, wow, right? You know? And so during the Depression, tours were collapsing, you know, in foreign countries, um, in other parts of America and stuff, and people were just stranded. This ha can happen even when it's not a depression. It can happen to mainstream, you know, performing artists, but it was really happening a lot. So they were raising money to try to rescue companies abroad. Um, they were trying to pay rent for people. Um, they were securing uh, instruments. Uh, there's a narrative of a, a guy who whose trumpet was stolen, and so they raised money to, you know, to get him a new trumpet. Um, they were also very interested in memorial services. Um, performing artists in particular have been very, very concerned about the legacy, right, and acknowledging the work that people before them did as well as, you know, sort of the ways it carries into the future. They were very, very clear um, about the fact that they were standing on the shoulders of, of others, right? Um, and so they had these elaborate memorial services on Easter Sunday. Um, At a moment, really, when, when you know, African-American performance was, was at, at the moment of moving from, you know, face-to-face -face performances that disappear mm -hmm. to performances that could be recorded right. and viewed on a screen and preserved. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice moment early in that mm -hmm. to, to sort of say, we know these other people are going to be forgotten, so we're right. going to make a point to, 
to to acknowledge them. Right, yeah. exactly, and and their significance. Mm-hmm. Um, they to that end, um, they were very much involved with Arturo Schomburg. He was um, the guild's first uh, historian, mm-hmm. and so he was his collection and the work that he was doing was also tied to. Uh, the performing arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and Washington, by the 1940s, she's still performing, right? Um, because a lot of times we think of, again, the the Renaissance as arts and it, it's sort of ending, and then there's all this activism, right, that right. leads into, you know, the civil rights movement with a capital C, right? Um, but it's actually ongoing. And uh, she's a writer um, in the 1940s as well as continuing to perform on stage and in film, uh, but she's a writer for Adam Clayton Powell Jr.'s newspaper, The People's Voice. One of the things that I'm, I'm struck by, and 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 I, 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 this will be part of the conversation in the second half of the show as well, is is that there are moments in American history, in American culture, where it seems like space collapses, and so you have, you know, someone like Freddie Washington bumping into, you know, within a what, a, a 15, 20, 100 block radius, the greats of this major cultural movement. Mm-hmm. And I wonder a couple things. Like I wonder, you know, what would she have been someplace else, first of all? Mm-hmm. Um, but second, um, what is that, as, as we think about the 100 years or so since the beginning of this movement, what does it mean for us to be situated geographically, historically, in this place where all of this happened and it was so kind of densely conceived. Yeah, I think that um, it's a, an, a really important and also difficult question um, insofar as part of the reason that all these people were concentrated together was because of segregation. Right. Um, no, we did not have de jure segregation in the North, but we had de facto segregation, right? right? Um, you know, the 110th Street line, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, but uh, I think that um, that did mean that, you know, people were right together, and the African-American cultural, social, political community was all lumped into various spots. You know, as I said, it's not just Harlem, but... It you know they're in concentrated spots. Subsequently, they're constantly talking to each other and seeing each other's performances and and reading each other's texts and writing letters and you know all of this. So they're they're constantly uh, you know speaking. And again, it's a it's a controversial argument. Um, but that without segregation, would you have had that? Mm-hmm. You know um, and. Uh, to me, I, I'm not sure I would say it was worth it. Uh, you know, that, that segregation was too much of an evil, right? right. Um, but at the same time, there is this concentration of talent and energy that, that happens because of it. Um, and again, even though it's not just in Harlem, Harlem is the epicenter, and being in this space, not even a block, right? From the, I mean, we're just up the hill from, from the Schomburg Center. Right. Um, I think is is hugely important. You yeah. know, um, it is hallowed ground. Yeah. yeah, and I guess there's also a way in which, you know, throughout human history, the the concentration of people's attention on a great evil is a spur 
to creativity. Again, it's not, it's not an argument for great evil, but it is a kind of testament to what we do as people that walk this earth when we're lucky yeah. and, and when we have the right conditions as a way of countering evil. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because um, it is said that, that uh, slavery is the antithesis of art, um, mm -hmm. meaning that if your mind and body are imprisoned, yeah. um, how can you possibly create art? Um, by extension, you could say violence is the antithesis of art and segregation is the antithesis of art and racism and discrimination and, you know, all of it. But at the same time, within the African-American community and other communities, all that oppression was the generator of tremendous art, yeah, right? It, it drives us to assert our humanity. In uh, some ways, yeah. You know, when, when you're denied it, it's like, how do you express it, you uh -huh. know? Additionally, because... Um, uh, education was denied to enslaved black people, to black people it was limited for, for so long, even though they were striving for it for so long. Um, subsequently, the African-American community turns to other means of communication, right? Um, we talk about the quilts during slavery, um, but we talk about blues songs mm -hmm. and uh, jazz performances and uh, spoken word poetry, right? Mm -hmm. Not just poetry that was written down, but, you know, the oral traditions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the vernacular traditions. And that is a huge part of um, what makes the, the Harlem Renaissance, the New Negro Renaissance, um, so, so unique. But at the same time, there's a huge literary component, right? And, of course, it's much easier, um, especially for scholars, to look at texts that are in bound in books in repositories like the Schomburg Center, right? You can see them, you can touch them, you can, you know, um, live performance, even though, yes, film is coming into it, it's like, well, how do you talk about the performances that there aren't any films of, right? Mm -hmm. And Freddie Washington, for example, did a lot of live performances, um, plays such as Mamba's Daughters or One Mile, for, I'm sorry, One Mile from Heaven is a film, um, uh, Lysistrata, she did, um, but a, a bunch of different plays, Black Boy Opposite, Paul Robeson. Mm. And it's like, oh, well, how do you get at those things? Um, and part of it is, a, is an interesting kind of triangulation, right, where you're looking, most of them there are photographs, but you're looking at um, fan reviews, right, uh, critics' reviews as well as fan mail, mm -hmm. right, as well as what the artists themselves said, and you're kind of trying to sort of figure it out and understand the meaning of those performances um, even when you can't actually see it again. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you an unfair question to, to, to end our first half hour, but as a historian, what's the most important thing you want people to carry away about Freddie Washington. What is it? And you're you're in some sense you've you've taken on the task of taking this artist activist legacy and presenting it to us. What's what's the jewel at the center of that of that effort? Um, I think that African American women, uh, African American female performing artists, um, are central to the larger movement. Um, one of the things that scholars are thinking about and starting again, just like we've understood New Negro Renaissance mm -hmm. as, a, as a melded term, we're also starting to think about the ways in which the New Negro Renaissance is a part 
of the larger black freedom movement, mm -hmm. right? And that African-American female performers are central to it. So we are pleased to welcome Dean Schomburg, who has had a long, rich career as a journalist, uh, has done um, really important work at the Schomburg Library, and as we have mentioned, is the grandson of Alfonso Schomburg, after whom the library is named. Um, and first I want to tell you a little bit about the history of the Schomburg Center. According to nypl.org, that's the website of New York Public Library, the Schomburg Center was founded in 1925 and named a National Historic Landmark in 2017. Originally named the Division of Negro Literature, History, and Prints, today's Schomburg Center first won international acclaim in 1926 when the personal collection of Puerto Rican-born black scholar Arturo Alfonso Schomburg was added. Schomburg came to the United States in 1891 and was only 17 years old when he started collecting proof that people of color had made contributions to the advancement of societies worldwide. Schomburg, Arturo Schomburg amassed more than 5,000 books, 3,000 manuscripts, 2,000 etchings and paintings, and several thousand pamphlets in the library. He served as curator of the Division of Negro Literature, History, and Prints from 1932 until his death in 1938. In 1940, the division was renamed the Schomburg Collection of Negro Literature, History, and Prints in his honor. And then in 1972, the Schomburg Collection was designated as one of the research libraries of the New York Public Library and became the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Today, the Schomburg Center offers lectures, film screenings, research documents, and exhibitions that showcase the contributions of people of African descent in America and worldwide. It's also promoted the study and interpretation of the history and culture of people of African descent. And as we learned earlier, uh, Professor um, um, uh, Woodard has, has been a, a, a fellow at the Schomburg Center, and, and, and this is a center that we at City College continue to draw on in our research as well. Um, it is located uh, right here in Harlem at the corner of Lenox Avenue and 135th Street. In fact, um, by some reckonings, the Schaumburg Center and uh, City College bookend uh, a pretty historic drive down 135th Street. And it was designed by Max Bond, who was uh, for some time the dean of the City College School of Architecture, and, and our architectural center bears his name. So we have a deep investment in the Schaumburg Center. Now let me tell you about our guest today, Dean Schaumburg. Uh, Mr. Schomburg was born in Brooklyn, New York. He's the son of Alfonso Schomburg's seventh son, Carlos Placido Schomburg. Um, he is a veteran journalist who's been a success had a successful career in television and radio. He was a radio news anchor for ABC Radio Network, headquartered in New York City, and a newscaster writer for the Wall Street Journal Radio Network. He was an announcer in New York City classical radio stations WQXR and WNCN, he was also the co-owner of a radio station in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Mr. Schaumburg hosted a network television program called Black Perspectives on the News, which originated in WHYY-TV in Philadelphia and was carried by the Eastern Educational Network. He is a summa cum laude graduate from Fordham University, where he earned his bachelor's degree with a major in African and African-American studies. And he also has a master's degree in communications and information services from Rutgers University with a concentration in media criticism. Dean Schomburg will be in conversation with Jay Johnson and Carlos Handy at 6 p.m. today at the City College Center for the Arts, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that almost immediately. Mr. Schomburg, welcome to From City to the World. We're really glad to have you. 
Thank you. Very nice to be here. Okay, so You've done your homework, I see. Oh, yes, I've done it, and, and, and so has my crack research team. <laughs> and um, now we all know why you were a radio host for so long. You've got a beautiful on-mic voice. Well, they kept telling me that, so I figured i got to do something with this, right? <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump right in and talk about what's going to happen tonight at Aaron Davis Hall. You will be in conversation with Jay Johnson, who was the uh, head of the uh, National Security uh, the Homeland Security, Homeland Security mm-hmm. Office for Barack Obama, mm-hmm. and also uh, in conversation with Carlos Handy, who is another descendant of a notable Harlem cultural figure. Can you tell us about what it's going to be today? In so far as you know, conversations are open ended, and how it came to pass that the three of you will be talking to each other. Tonight. Okay, so it all came to pass because of music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jay Johnson, who was the Homeland Secretary in uh, the Obama administration, uh, was uh, on WBGO. He did a uh, guest um, presentation with Bob Porter, who does the blues show on WBGO. I guess maybe people know that radio station. It's a jazz station. It's a great station. And so is this one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, and I listened, and I heard uh, heard Jay Johnson doing this show with Bob Porter, and said, wow, that's pretty interesting. This was about a year ago. And I said, well, i got to see if I can get a hold of Jay because um, I'm also a trustee at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. And uh, we have a program there that we do. It's kind of like a podcast. So it's an internal uh, audio presentation. We call it uh, Harlem Speaks. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, Jay, uh, I know that he's a jazz fan. Uh, um, I think that he could come to uh, do our, our program at, uh, at the Jazz Museum. So I called him. Well, let me cut it a little shorter. So I called him. I got a hold of him at, uh, at his, um, his law firm, Paul Weiss Rifkin, downtown, mm-hmm. and I said who I am, and uh, I explained to him that we have this program, it's an audio program, and would he like to take part? I said it's not about music necessarily, but it's about how, music, how the jazz or the music that you know, how it inf- impacted the, the work that you do and the life that you lived. And so he said, fine. So in the course of our conversations, uh, uh, we emailed each other, and then he mentioned, you know, uh, my grandfather, uh, Charles S. Johnson, Charles Spurgeon Johnson, uh, was uh, a leading light in the Harlem Renaissance. And I said, oh, well, um, so was my grandfather. I said, my grandfather was uh, Arturo Schomburg, and he was uh, kind of active in the uh, Harlem Renaissance. So I said, do you suppose that they knew each other? So Jay said, yeah, probably. Jay was pulling my leg, mm-hmm. you know. I didn't know it at the time. So, uh, so we did the show. And at the show that we were doing at the Jazz Museum, Jay said, well, listen, you know, we have, uh, it's interesting that we, he says, I feel like you're a long-lost cousin. And I said, I feel the same. I'm so glad that we found each other. And he said, well, listen, we, uh, for Black History, this was just this past October. Okay. So he said, for Black History Month, why don't we get together and do something, do a seminar, or it's a TV, radio, whatever. Let's do something about it. I said, okay, fine. Um, so... I got a, then I talked to Karen Witherspoon, who is your VP of uh, Community and Cultural and Government Affairs. I think that's right. right? And she uh, took the ball. I said, you know, Jay and I are, uh, would like to do something, um, and maybe we could do something at City College because if this is our this is our home. This is our homeland. And Karen ran with the ball. And long story short, we're going to do the program tonight. Now, Carlos Handy, we were thinking about somebody else who might uh, be. You know, interested in be able to uh, to lend something to this program that we're going to do because he's a Carlos Handy is of course as you say the grandson of W. C. Handy, so I couldn't find him, but I just Googled Carlos Handy, and I came up with this 
um, uh, with this resume, and I didn't understand a word of what this. He's a <laughs> physicist, and I didn't understand anything about what he was doing. Right. But turns out he was at Tex- Texas Southern University in Houston. Okay. I called him. And, he, and uh, the secretary says, well, who's calling? Dean Schomburg. Um, okay, well, he, and he talked to me. And I explained to him what I was going to do. He says, oh, well, really? I said, yeah, we're going to do a program up at City College. It's going to be February 19th. And maybe you could uh, take part. He says, why, sure. And that was it. So we're all three going to um, con, you know, con, congeal or collaborate uh, this evening and do this program. It's going to be about the Harlem Renaissance because we are the grandsons of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, some of the major luminaries of the Harlem Renaissance. That's fantastic. I mean, first of all, I want to thank you for referring to City College as your homeland because I can't tell you how, how that warms my heart to hear. Um, but, Laurie, this is also, I mean, it's kind of what I was talking about earlier, that, that we live in a space where the grandchildren of the great luminaries of the Harlem Renaissance, people who bumped into each other and worked with each other and supported each other through those, can, can kind of have that same experience even today. And so we're, you know, I don't know how much different Harlem is today in that respect than it was back in the Harlem Renaissance. We are, we are, we are not thrown together because of segregation. But you walk through the institutions of Harlem and you find, you know, people who are creating art, people that are innovating, and the children and grandchildren of these extraordinary luminaries. Uh, um, I want to ask you what it's like to be, to, 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 you know, you've had your own life, your own career, um, your work in journalism, we've read through it, and yet you're also a kind of walking embodiment of this legacy, and I, I suspect you spend some time bumping into other walking embodiments of historical legacies. What's that like? Well, you know, it's um, sometimes I can't believe who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't believe how did this happen that I was born to this family, and there was and there was so much uh, there was so much legacy that I'd had to that I had to embrace and I had to uh, try to. Um, explore and to, you know, let people know this is what this man, my grandfather, was all about. I was very proud of that, and I am very proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's like you, it's a duty, but and you have to embrace it, which I do, um, and it can be, um, uh, it makes you understand that you, you, you know so little, right? I wish that I knew more than I, than I do, because people ask me all the time, Especially about the person, the personal part of my life and my interaction with Arthur Schomburg, and there was none because Arthur Schomburg died in June of uh, 1938. I was born in January of 1939. I'll give you three seconds to do the math. And wait, wait, I'm still working on it. <laughs> Got it. Thank you. <laughs> so we we never met. We never con- connected. Although I like to think that Arturo Schomburg knew I was coming, mm-hmm. but. If he didn't know it then, I'm sure he knows it now because yeah. I've been working to make sure that he, um, his work is, is understood and appreciated, and it's important. So, uh, so, so what, but the thing about Arturo Schomburg in terms of any personal um, uh, relation I would have had to him, with him is non-existent, but I did know he had seven sons and one daughter. Mm-hmm. I'm the son of his seven sons, as you mentioned. My, my uh, father was Carlos Placido Schomburg. And Dr. Handy's grandson is named Carlos as well. 
His, he, he calls himself Charlie now, but uh, uh-huh. he was born in Havana, but he is, um, he, uh, he is also Carlos. Uh, so, um, so the thing is that we never, I never had a chance to talk to him, but only through his sons did I learn something about him. And, and I, what I learned was that his passion for collecting these items, this ephemera, these, uh, you know, the art, the, the, uh, the literature, everything that he collected was so important to him that he um, didn't pay a lot of attention to his sons. Mm-hmm. I would ask my uncle that. In fact, I have a, if, if you're going to be there tonight, you're going to see a video that I did for uh, WPIX which, in which I talked to my uncle Nat. And I said, well, uh, you know, what happened? What, what was it at the dinner table when you were sitting around? Uh, what was this conversation like? How did you guys interact with you and your dad? With your, you and your dad? My uncle Matt says he was never there. Hmm. He was never there. And so then I began to understand um, that, um, that the passion that he had for doing his work kind of overruled anything else. So he left all of the... the uh, uh, left to his wives, he had three wives, all of whom were named Elizabeth, as I'm sure you know. Um, uh, but he left the raising of his sons to his to his uh, wives, and so they uh, there was never any real uh, relationship, even amongst the what they would call stepsons you now, because uh, they just never they never really got into a family mode. So that was one of the things that that. Um, that I learned about him, but it doesn't matter, you know. In fact, there's there's some research now going on, in which there's some question about whether he, is, whether the name Schomburg really belongs to him, or was it appropriated from a family with whom he uh, lived or had some close connection. The Dr. Heidi Richard, do you know Dr. Richard? No, I do. You know, she's at the University of Puerto Rico, and she's a genealogist, and she has done a lot of research about the Schomburg name, because everybody asks, well, where does that name come from? Well, Schomburg, the, the, the origin, origin of the name, of course, is German, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the Schomburg, uh, um, Schomburg's father, who he called a mestizo, which is like a, mm-hmm. a, you know, a mixed Mix. race, right, yeah. um, who was, um, was Carlos Federico Schomburg. So, uh, uh, so the thing is that we don't know really uh, about the name. There's some, there's some question about that. Uh, but I, and I, I think that truth is where, it, where everything lies. So I, I don't want to um, uh, you know, gloss over the fact that there are these issues that some people think. Some people also say that he was not, uh, that he abandoned his Latinidad, his, his, his Latin roots, uh, because he never went back to Puerto Rico. Um, and he... Um, uh, you know, kind of maybe adopted Arthur as his name rather than Arturo, although that changed. I think there was a tr- kind of a, a transmogrification or something he did when he was Arturo and then Arthur and then back to Arturo. So the, all of that, um, in terms of what I learned about him, is it's all secondhand, so I don't have any real, real, mm-hmm. uh, you know, primary source information I can give about him. But it's just that uh, I feel uh, like I'm blessed that I have this... I have this, um, uh, you know, this legacy to protect and to to nourish, if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Latino African American legacies, of, because you have actually spent some of your time writing and lecturing in, you know, I, I, I see you've given papers in Puerto Rico that sort of specifically talk about the relationship between. 
Latino history and, and, and African-American history in your grandfather's legacy. And, I mean, where do you think that stands today when so much of our political and cultural discourse parses out the difference between Caribbean and African-American and African and Latino? And can, can you talk about how you think about your grandfather's legacy in those terms? I can. Um... So the whole idea that uh, there was there was a, always a question when I was down. The, I think what you're referring to is when I was down at the University of Puerto Rico, and I Correct. did uh, some paper. I did some presentations down yes. there, um, and one of the things that uh, one of the uh, one of the things that happened that, that is said about him is that he abandoned his Puerto Rican roots. Uh, he abandoned his his Latin uh, uh, his Latinidad. I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of your colleagues, uh, Vanessa Valdez, yes. and uh, diasporic blackness, mm-hmm. uh, ab- approached that in a very, very nice way, in a very unique way, and she uh, uh, defended uh, 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 Arturo Schomburg in a way that's because he didn't just um, uh, abandon, uh, you know, the Puerto Rican side of his uh, of his life. He uh, he embraced the, the the blackness of a of a U.S. of a of an American Negro, as they would say in those days. He embraced that, but but he but he 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 talked about a um, he talked about a world. He talked about a diasporic uh, kind of uh, approach to to what he was trying to collect and what we as people of color throughout uh, this hemisphere and and throughout the world actually what we had contributed and why we were um, and, and what we were all about. So, um, so I don't think that um, he was um, disparaging of his uh, Puerto Rican uh, heritage or roots. I think that he embraced it, but he was here in this country, and he saw that this is where the racism was. This is where uh, there were big problems in terms of our, our, um, uh, you know, our relationship to the dominant culture, and he addressed that. I mean, when he first came here, he... Uh, he he formed this group, Las Dos Antillas, right? The two two, two islands, Cuba and Puerto Rico, and he wanted to make sure, or at least try to uh, say that they uh, they were being dominated by Spain, and he wanted to get them released from that domination. So he worked on that uh, as as a like eighteen or nineteen year old. He was trying to do that. So um, yeah, his, the whole thing about the Latin uh, side of uh, Arturo Schomburg, it it is it was in him and it stayed in him and it never left and I think that um, he embraced his uh, his Latin heritage in a way that people probably maybe misunderstand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have some experience um, having my last name associated with a cultural uh, institution in uh, the south there is a diaper rash cream called Boudreaux's butt paste and, and, and so I carry that <laughs> legacy with me um, I wonder uh, I want to ask this question of both of you though um, uh, Laurie you've done some formidable research in the Schomburg Center uh, Dean you've, you've spent a good part of your life building up and curating and stewarding the legacy of this fantastic research and cultural center that happens to bear your last name can you both talk to me um, in Black History Month what it means to have used to be affiliated with this treasure in, in, in Harlem? Give you the last word, and I'll just say very quickly that without the uh, Schomburg Center, I don't think I would have a professional life. 
Uh, it is the center. Freddie Washington very graciously donated her papers to the Schomburg Center. As mm -hmm. I said, I discovered the photograph at the uh, Morgan and Marvin Smith exhibit at the Schomburg Center. Um, it is an intellectual, cultural, social, political juggernaut. <laughs> you know, it is it is everything mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, African diasporic identity, uh, research, uh, life, uh, identity. Uh, yeah. Mm. So, so I go back to there was a there was a, a, a writer, an author. Neil Portman, who was in uh, New York City, uh, I think he was in Brooklyn. Yeah. He wrote several books, and they were kind of self-help help books. And one of his books in 1982, I forget the title of the book, but one of the things he said that st sticks with me now is that uh, children are the messages we send to a time we will not see. Mm. And, I, and, and that's so important, right? And so I think of me, and I think of Jay Johnson, and I think of Carlos Handy, Dr. Handy, I think that we, uh, that's what we can do. We can bring these messages to th that were assigned to us, in a way, by, by the creator. Um, and we can bring these messages to the greater uh, audience, the greater people who, who um, whom we are in touch with, and we can, I, I'm here on the radio now, and I'm talking about it. So that's the kind of thing that I think we can, I can do to be uh, part, of the, part of the whole black experience. I have a, I'm unique in that, in that sense. But um, as again, but we all have the same. I think the same. Uh, we, we all have the same direction, mm. right? We have to send messages that we we have to deliver messages that were sent to us, mm. and I think that's what I try to do. Fantastic. We have um, very very quickly it seems run out of time. Um, so I want to thank you for listening to from City of the World. A special thanks to our two fantastic guests, Professor Laurie Woodard. Um, who's the recipient of the National Endowment for the Humanities Schomburg Scholar-in-Residence Fellowship and a veteran journalist, Dean Schomburg, the grandson of Alfonso Schomburg, um, also a trustee of the National Jazz Museum of Harlem, where we are starting to do some work, so mm -hmm. I appreciate your work there. I want to remind everybody that at 6 p.m. today here at City College, at the City College Center for the Arts, um, in our Aaron Davis Hall, the conversation that Dean Schomburg has been talking about will take place, and it's moderated by the great Jonathan Capehart. So it should be a, a, a really terrific night. Dean Schomburg will be in conversation with former Homeland Security uh, Secretary Jay Johnson, who's also the grandson of the former president of Fisk University, Charles Spurgeon Johnson, and Carlos Handy will also be in the conversation. And um, we've heard that he's a physics professor at Clark Atlanta University and now um, uh, uh, is down at Southern, what did you say? Uh, Texas Southern. Texas, Texas Southern. Southern University. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but he is the uh, grandson of the creator of ragtime music, W.C. Handy. So um, we, you will see uh, history reflected and um, articulated tonight at Aaron Davis Hall. Um, City College Center for the Arts is located on the campus of City College at Convent Avenue at 135th Street. This show is produced by Angela Harden, yours truly, Vince Boudreau. I am your host. Vince Boudreau, the president of City College of New York, and I thank you for joining us for another edition of From City to the World. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>